0: Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time tonight. We thank you for this wonderful book, The Great Divorce. We thank you for this wonderful conference that many of us experienced this past weekend. Lord, as we come tonight from busy days and busy weeks, we pray that you would help us to put aside all of the other things with which we've been preoccupied and that you would open the eyes of our hearts that as we look at your word and then look at the stories that Lewis has written, that we would be drawn further up and further in. Lord, we pray that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit this night, for we pray all of this for Jesus' sake, amen. So, it is a great joy uh, to see you here tonight and also to have the folks that are listening online. Um, for those that are listening online, I do wanna just say, Uh, What a great joy it was to meet so many of you at the Lewis Conference. One of the things that apparently is true about me that I did not realize is that I have a somewhat unusual voice. And so as I was wandering around chatting with people at the conference, people that I've never met would come up to me and say, you're the podcast person. which was not anything I've ever been called before, but I've decided to embrace that. Uh, but it was a beautiful thing, and I got to meet a lot of people that follow the class who live elsewhere, so that was, that was a great joy. So just so you know, tonight we are going to be setting the stage some for Chapter 9, uh, which is the long chapter uh, where Lewis encounters George MacDonald that some of you read ahead and were frustrated with me for making you spend an entire week on McDonald before, but you'll thank me later. Uh, It was good for you. Uh, But we're gonna set the stage a little bit for that tonight, and then we also are going to do a little recap of some of the high points from the conference uh, for those of you who could not be there. So uh, our music tonight, if I can get this to do. This is really easy, you should get this. The pressure's on. I know Laura already knows what it is. Does anybody else know yet? All right, Jane knows. I'm going to let it play till it gets to the first line. So that was the name of it. I was glad. And it is, I think, one of the two or three most glorious choral anthems ever written. The text can't be beat because it's Psalm 122. Uh, And it was the anthem in the Friday service uh, in the midst of the mere Anglicanism conference that was a remarkable time. And one of the remarkable things about it is that we had uh, a lot of remarkable speakers and several that it was the most moving worship experience that they have ever experienced in their lifetime, which is saying a lot. And that service, because Mark Collins recorded it, is on our YouTube channel. And I would strongly encourage you to set aside some time and put it on a big screen with big speakers and just bask in it because it was wonderful. All right, um, let's start, as usual, by saying our verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, So, for those of you who are new or who are joining us online for the first time, welcome. There are three ways to approach this class. Uh, You can be on the beach. And basically, that means that you are on the beach. You're just lying there. Uh, You are soaking up whatever happens to hit you. Maybe you're ordering a drink from the waiter, uh, but you're not really doing any work. And if that's all you want to do, I am absolutely delighted to have you and glad you're here. Or you can snorkel, which means on those parts that you find interesting, you can go deeper. Uh, You can read the handouts, or one of the handouts. Or you can listen to the music link and think about it, Uh, so that could be snorkeling. Or you can scuba dive, which means that you go down the rabbit hole, you might possibly be a nerd uh, like me, And uh, enjoy reading every little article and the footnotes and everything else and then doing more research after you've read all that. But whatever level you're at, we are delighted that you are here. One thing I would really encourage you to do, though, if you're new, is please sign up if you are not on the class email list. Because every week I send out um, a copy of the PowerPoint with the links, and the handouts and then a summary of what we did the week before, and it is a great way to prepare for class, or if you missed a class, or if you wanna share what class is like with somebody who hasn't come yet, uh, it's a great resource for that. And also if you're new, uh, if you're reading this book, uh, we're going pretty slowly through this book, uh, but I would encourage you to only read a chapter at a time. It's really easy to just wanna blaze through this book, but this book is designed to be chewed upon, like a really fine steak. And if you go too fast, you're gonna miss some of the the beauty and depth of what Lewis is doing. So, uh, last time, which was two weeks ago, because last Wednesday we were going back and forth to the airport, picking up speakers that were coming from the UK. Um, We talked about who was George MacDonald and why is he so important in understanding not only C.S. Lewis, but the great divorce. And there are a couple of quotations that we talked about. One was from a letter that Lewis wrote in 1946. And one of the remarkable things about Lewis that you might not know is that he answered every single letter he got up until the week that he died in 1963. And many of the letters that he got were from children after the Chronicles of Narnia uh, came out, and he answered all of them. And if you are a scuba diver, um, get Lewis's book, Letters to Children. It is beautiful. Uh, But anyway, this Mr. Fredama, which is quite a name, Mr. Fredama, asked Lewis about the steps to his conversion. And in part of that letter, Lewis said this, I was brought back, that is, to the Christian faith from atheism, first by philosophy. I still think Bishop George Berkeley's proof for the existence of God is unanswerable. Second, by increasing knowledge of medieval literature, which we heard about this weekend, it became harder and harder to think that all those great poets and philosophers were wrong and thirdly, by the strong influence of two writers, the Presbyterian George MacDonald and the Roman Catholic G.K. Chesterton. And just as an aside, we're not gonna talk about Chesterton, but he is well worth learning about. How many of you have ever read any G.K. Chesterton? That's more than I might have thought. Um, Many of you will have heard of him if you've ever heard of the Father Brown mystery show. um, That is based on a detective story by G.K. Chesterton. So Lewis also in his autobiography says this uh, while he was an atheist, all the books were beginning to turn against me. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experiences as a reader. George MacDonald had done more to me than any other writer. Of course, it was a pity he had that bee in his bonnet about Christianity. He was good in spite of it. And then he said, I had not the faintest notion what I'd let myself in for by buying Fantasties. That night my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me took longer. And then in his uh, preface to a book about McDonald that Lewis himself compiled, he talks about how much he valued McDonald. And the fact that he valued him almost in spite of the fact that in some ways, MacDonald was not a very good writer. And Lewis says that uh, if we define literature as an art whose medium is words, then certainly MacDonald has no place in its first rank, perhaps not even in its second. There are indeed passages, many of them in this collection, where the wisdom, and I would dare to call it, the holiness that are in him, triumph over and even burn away the baser what he does best is fantasy fantasy that hovers between the allegorical and the mythopoic and this in my opinion he does better than any man and he goes on to talk about myth myth is a story where the mere pattern of events is all that matters most myths were made in prehistoric times and perhaps not consciously made by individuals at all. But every now and then there occurs in the modern world a genius, a Kafka or a who can make such a story. MacDonald is the greatest genius of this kind whom I know. That is a strong statement. And he says that this art is in some ways more akin to music than poetry. It goes beyond the expression of things we've already felt. It arouses in us sensations we've never had before, never anticipated having, as though we had broken out of our normal mode of consciousness and possessed joys not promised to our birth. It gets under our skin, hits us at a level deeper than our thoughts or even our passions, troubles old certainties till all questions are reopened and in general shocks us more fully awake than we are for most of our lives. The divine sonship is the key conception which unites all the different elements of his thought. I dare not say he's never in error, but to speak plainly I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continually close to the spirit of Christ himself. I've never concealed the fact that I regarded him as my master. Indeed, I fancy I've never written a book in which I did not quote from him. So Lewis is telling us that this guy is hugely influential. And if you want to understand somebody's writing, you want to understand who the people are who influenced them. And clearly, George MacDonald had a major league influence on C.S. Lewis. And in this last paragraph, he talks about um, trying to get through McDonald's writing. And he says, there was no question of getting through to the kernel and throwing away the shell, no question of a gilded pill. The pill was gold all through. The quality which had enchanted me in his imaginative works turned out to be the quality of the real universe, the divine, magical, terrifying an ecstatic reality in which we all live. I should have been shocked in my teens if anyone had told me that what I learned to love in Fantasties was goodness. But now that I know, I see there was no deception. The deception is all the other way around, and that prosaic moralism, which confines goodness to the region of law and duty, which never lets us feel in our face the sweet air blowing from the land of righteousness, never reveals that elusive form, Christ, which if once seen, must inevitably be desired with all but sensuous desire, the thing more gold than gold. And the reason I wanted to go through this part again is that for those of you who were at the conference or who will get to read about it later on, The theme of the conference was telling a more beautiful story, lessons from C.S. Lewis on reaching a fractured world. And George MacDonald knew how to tell a beautiful story. And that line that I just read, uh, I think, tells us about that. Not only the, the sweet air blowing from the land of righteousness, but that line about the reality that we live in that is an ecstatic reality, that it is a the life that we live, we are surrounded by wonders and what Satan and his minions and materialism and our cultural issues and all that have done have caused us to walk around all the time looking down and being in despair and being anxious rather than looking at the wonder of the creation of God that is all around us. And when we recover the beauty of that story, we not only have the truth of the gospel to share, but a completely different lens about viewing what life on this earth is all about. So, we're going to do a little stage setting. Chapter 9 in The Great is the longest chapter in the book. And there's all kinds of stuff going on in it. And if you read it and you get finished with it and you think, huh? What? Um, Don't worry. That's totally fine. You're probably supposed to feel that a little bit. And we're going to unpack all of it. So do not worry. Do not be anxious. It's all going to be fine. Uh, But the great thing about this chapter is Lewis uses MacDonald, who is one of the bright spirits in heaven, as a foil to be able to talk about some really deep issues um, through a story in a way that is utterly compelling. So the first thing that happens in chapter nine is that Lewis meets George MacDonald. And I love the way he recounts this meeting. He says, on one of the rocks sat a very tall man, almost a giant with a flowing beard. I had not yet looked one of the solid people in the face. Now when I did so, I discovered that one sees them with a kind of double vision. Here was an enthroned and shining God whose ageless spirit weighed upon mine like a burden of solid gold. And yet, at the very same moment, here was an old weather-beaten man, one who might have been a shepherd. Such a man as tourist might think simple because he's honest and neighbors think deep for the same reason. His eyes had the far-seeing look of one who has lived long in open, solitary places, and somehow I divined the network of wrinkles which must have surrounded them before rebirth had washed him in immortality. My name is George, he answered, George MacDonald. Oh, I cried, then you can tell me. You at least will not deceive me. And you'll remember if you've been following along, is Lewis has been having this terrible, horrible, frightening idea that this excursion into, the, into heaven from hell is actually perhaps just a torture device, that there's no real possibility that he could stay. And it's an awful game like the, the cat playing with the mouse and that he's been lured into this, and he doesn't know who to believe because the other ghosts are telling him to be cynical, whereas the bright spirits are inviting him to come further in, and he doesn't know what to do. So he says to George MacDonald, you can tell me, you at least will not deceive me. Then supposing that these expressions of confidence needed some explanation, I tried trembling to tell this man all that his writings had done for me. I tried to tell him how a certain frosty afternoon at Leatherhead Station, when I first bought a copy of *Fantasies*, being then about 16 years old, had been to me what the first sight of Beatrice had been to Dante. I'm very tempted to tell you the whole story of the Divine Comedy right now. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. This is such a cheap way out. But if you don't know about Dante and Beatrice, go to Wikipedia. All right, so uh, the first sight of Beatrice had been to Dante. Here begins the new life. I started to confess how long that life had delayed in the region of imagination merely. How slowly and reluctantly I had come to admit that his Christendom had more than an accidental connection with it. How hard I had tried not to see that the true name of the quality which first met me in his books, is holiness. And one of the things that, uh, if you've read the Screwtape letters, Screwtape talks a lot about the philology department of hell. Philology, uh, which is such a fun word to say, is basically the study of languages, how words come to have the meanings that we attach to them. And according to Screwtape, there's a philology department in hell that is busy 24 seven trying to undermine the real meaning of words and change them, especially words that are important in scripture. And holiness is one of them. So when we think of holiness, you think, if somebody invited you, would you like to spend Friday night with somebody that seems really holy? Um, I, I think I've decided to wash my hair that night Holiness is not, for most of us, something that sounds compelling. But the fact of the matter is that holiness is the most attractive quality that there is in the universe. Holiness involves not only a being completely at one with what you were made to be, but being at one with God and understanding all of the kingdom of God and reflecting that like that fountain of life that's in the Trinity at the center of the universe. So holiness is something that is beautiful and attractive and powerful, and we need to recover the meanings of these words. So obviously, just from that little introduction, Lewis is going to have a deep conversation with McDonald about what's really going on with this whole heaven and hell business. And so they go into this conversation about heaven and hell and purgatory through the lens of choice and time. And we're going to have a teaching about purgatory later on, but before anyone who is um, ultra-concerned about that flips out, um, let me just say that Lewis, although he is claimed by many people um, to believe in the doctrine of purgatory, What Lewis means by purgatory is not what uh, most people think of the doctrine of purgatory as being. And just a really quick little explanation, one of the things you'll remember if you studied mere Christianity is Lewis talks a lot about how God's time and man's time are not the same. And Lewis loves this idea, you see it in the Chronicles of Narnia, where the time in Narnia goes at a different rate than it does in our world. And so part of what Lewis understands to be true is that we are sinful. When we come to Christ, we have faith in Christ and we are justified through Christ's blood shed on the cross, but we're still sinful while we're in this life. And we need to be cleansed. And the cleansing takes place through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. And the question That Lewis has is what does that look like time-wise? And he says it might be just a nanosecond that when you die in that moment you are covered and you go immediately to heaven. But it may be that the other scripture passages where it talks about being judged on all of your deeds, that there's there's some kind of time in there. But none of us know how long that lasts. But the chief point Lewis makes is that we cannot earn our way. We cannot be sprung, um, like the medieval idea of purgatory, that you could be sprung out of it by something. The only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ and his shed blood, and that that is all you need. So we'll we'll talk more about that later, but there's a conversation about all of that. If you get confused reading that part, don't worry, we're going to deal with that. There are two really good handouts tonight. I can say that because I didn't write either of them. And they are uh, unpacking Lewis's teaching about this. And one of the things that's complicated about Lewis is Lewis never wrote a book called The Christian Doctrine of Hell and Purgatory. What he did is he littered through fiction and nonfiction about 20 different books, different parts of his thoughts about these things. And if you take any one of them in isolation, you're gonna come out with a wrong view. But one of the great gifts that we have in the church right now is Tim Keller. And Tim Keller is a huge Lewis fan and somebody who I think really understands Lewis, which not all preachers do. Uh, but he gave a great sermon. Tim Keller gave a great sermon on hell that I'm going to send you a copy of in the email. Uh, but there's also been some writing that he did, and that's what uh, these articles are about, and they will, they will help you put all these pieces together in a way that I hope will make sense. Um, but the other thing to remember, and we talked about this at length if you were here early on in class, in the preface to the great divorce, and you'll remember if you've been in Lewis classes with me, one of the things that I always tell you is read the preface, and probably read it multiple times because Lewis is always going to tell you a lot in the preface about what he's up to and what he's writing. So in this preface, he ends it with this line, I beg, that's strong, I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. In other words, this is not a textbook of systematic theology. This is a fantasy. It has of course, or I intended it to have, a moral. But the transmortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They're not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. So that is Lewis's disclaimer to not base any theology out of this, but rather, uh, well, we'll save that for next time, uh, what he's really up to here. And there's a wonderful quotation in this chapter that I want to close this part with. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. And we will be unpacking that uh, in the weeks to come. So, switching gears, Mere Anglicanism 2023... What a great time it was. Uh, We were very privileged to have many of the leading Lewis scholars in the world with us. We had attendees from all over North America and from some other countries, nearly a thousand people when you count all the volunteers and staff and everyone else. It was by far the largest conference on CS Lewis ever held in history anywhere right here in Charleston, South Carolina, of all places. Uh, But it it was remarkable, and eventually, all of the sessions are gonna come out in a recorded form, but I wanted to just hit some highlights for you in the hope that it will inspire you to do what almost everyone did at the conference, which is the instant there was a break to run upstairs and buy all the books that that speaker had written so the bookstore of kept running out of things. Anytime a book got mentioned from the podium, you could literally, if you had a camera up there, it'd be like, shup, 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 shup. and then there'd be a blank stack there, no stack at all. Uh, so the conference started with the Reverend Dr. Alistair McGrath. Alistair McGrath is one of the most brilliant people in the world. He has not one, not two, but three doctorates from Oxford University in intellectual history, biochemistry, and theology. Um, He is the definition of a polymath, somebody that is just a genius in a lot of different fields. And he gave the introductory story uh, presentation. And really, in a lot of ways, we owe this conference title and theme to him because he spoke in Charleston back, I think, in 2015 at Mere Anglicanism when the topic was secularism, and what do we do as the church to engage a culture that doesn't care about faith, that's not interested, that's embraced the secular hedonistic viewpoint. And his whole focus when he was here then, which was prophetic, was that we need to embrace the power of story, and that we have the most beautiful story in the gospel, And we need to learn fresh ways of telling it to a culture that thinks it's heard it before but actually hasn't. So in this talk, he talked about longing and beauty and story. And longing is something that Lewis talks about a lot in his work. He uses the German word Seinsucht for it, which is this idea of, if you think about the happiest memory from when you were a child, whether it was a Christmas morning or your birthday or the most beautiful place you ever went on a family vacation. And you can remember all the little details of it, the way the food smelled and the way the flower and the sunlight was hitting. And you wish, as you're remembering the joy of it, you wish you could enter into that moment again, but you know that you can't. If you've seen Thornton Wilders, Our Town, The end of that play captures this more beautifully than just about anything. But he was talking about, Lewis was talking about this longing as a pointer to us toward the kingdom of God, that we can't find anything in this world that fulfills that longing. It's the same thing Augustine was talking about when he said, Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. So he talked about longing, and then he talked about beauty and how starved we are and our culture for beauty and how we misunderstand beauty and think of it just in terms of physical beauty like cosmetics and that we've, we've lost out on the idea of the beauty and grandeur and the wonder of God and that we as Christians part of our role is to rebuild, to reclaim that doctrine of beauty. And then he went on to go and talk about story and how um, in so many ways We are like uh, a culture that is under the oppression of an evil king or queen, and that we need to be broken out of that. And he quoted several times from The Weight of Glory, and um, I wish I'd made a bet with Daryl Haygood, because I told her to make sure she read that before the conference, because I knew it was going to be quoted a lot, and it was. Uh, But in this particular instance that Dr. McGrath quoted, he said, spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. And basically what he's saying is that we have had all of our normal and natural responses that are put in us by our creator that they have been beaten down over the years by our culture so that we like liken that first song. Um, how many of y'all have seen Les Miserables? Well, you might know the first song is Look down, look down. Well, that's what we do. We look down, we're either looking down or we're looking at our phone, looking down. We are not looking into the vault of heaven, which is what most every generation before us did that the most wondrous thing that they saw was the night sky. And they wove myths about this. And they talked about how can this be that this appears every night. And now we've crowded out the night sky by our man-made mercury vapor light. And uh, it's not a good trade. And what McGrath is saying is that we are under, it's like we're under an evil spell. And we need a story story a new spell that can break that enchantment, free us, cause the scales to fall off our eyes and be able to see things right. And then when he was talking about beauty, quoting from Weight of Glory again, he said, we do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And this longing for beauty is all over our culture, and it's part of the reason that in the 20 to 30 year old age range, the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia are both in the top 10 books and movies for that demographic because we live in a world that is starved for beauty, and you enter those stories and there's beauty everywhere, and people are so sad, they don't want to come out of them. And this is where, now, I'm not endorsing video games, but there's some video games that create a beautiful reality like that. There are others that are just horrible and violent. Uh, but it's part of why people get addicted to them, because you can go into this place where there is beauty, and we're starved for that. But McGrath closed by saying Christianity is a story with a capital S that we can trust. It is a story that will not let us down. That's not just a beautiful idea, but false. It's a beautiful idea that is true with a capital T, and it also draws into it our own story. Our own stories connect with the truth and beauty of the gospel. So he teed up everything, and the next we had Philip Ryken, who's the president of Wheaton College. Uh, many of you know that's where... Uh, Billy Graham was a student a lot of other famous Christian leaders. But it was also the first place that realized C.S. Lewis is someone who really is going to be important. And they started an archive on C.S. Lewis while he was still living in the 1960s and started building a collection. And so now the Marion Wade Center there, other than the Bodleian Library, is the greatest repository of Lewis, Tolkien, and Inklings materials in the world. Um, Philip Ryken's dad, uh, Dr. Leland Ryken, is another amazing Lewis scholar who's done a lot of work on Paradise Lost. So Dr. Ryken came in and talked about Lewis and his uh, attitude towards scripture, and a couple of areas where some people have accused Lewis of being a little off about scripture, but Dr. Ryken did a great job of explaining those and linking them with Lewis's understanding of different types of literature and then ending with um, Lewis's really strong statements about the authority of Scripture and that if we don't choose to live under the authority of Scripture, we are on a slippery slope that is going to end in disaster. And Lewis, um, throughout his life, proclaimed that Scripture... Was the thing that must guide us as individual Christians and must guide the church as well. But he also talked about the whole idea of myth. And myth, when I use that word, I'm not talking about myth like something that's a lie, but myth in terms of like the Greek myths, stories that have a deeper meaning uh, where you, a truth that maybe you can't put into words in a didactic fashion, you can create a story that explains it in a way that is beautiful. And Lewis felt that scripture was the most profound myth with a capital M that had ever been devised, but that it had the distinction of being the only myth with a capital M that was also true with a capital T. And in one of his writings, he says, it is a place where the myth became fact and walked on the earth and left footprints. And there's a deep truth to that. But Lewis's resounding commitment to scripture, Dr. McGrath said the same thing, that one of the things about longing, beauty, and story is that unless they are deeply rooted, deeply rooted in an orthodox understanding of the scripture, where it' sunk, We've got to have all of that rooted in Scripture. Then the next speaker was Dr. Peter Kraft. Peter Kraft has been teaching, I think, philosophy for 50-plus years. Uh, He's written over 100 books. Um, He is a genius. And when he got up to speak, it was like a fire hose. His first sentence, I wish I had recorded it, as soon as we get a transcript, I'm going to read it to you, but it was just one of those you, you feel like you've been taken up into a different world. Uh, but he was talking about Lewis as a prophet. And those of you that were here in our last class on the abolition of man and that hideous strength, Craft uh, talked a lot about why recovering an understanding of the abolition of man is so very important. And he said he really believes philosophically and this is interesting he is someone who is deeply respected in the secular world as a philosopher he's not just a christian um, apologist he is someone who has done deep and wide work in the field of secular philosophy but he says out of all of the works of philosophy that are out there um, and the works of fiction that relate to philosophy that brave new world and abolition of man are in a class by themselves. And he says, they are the two most important books of the past hundred years. So that's a pretty strong statement. And he uh, had 12 points. I'm not going to go through all of them. But he had a very very powerful closing because some of the points were kind of dark, uh, just like the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets are not usually coming out and saying, Barney's on the way and we're gonna all sing I love you and you love me, we're a happy family. Um, that's not what prophets do, prophets tell you the truth and sometimes the truth is hard to hear and sometimes the truth is destruction is coming. And what Dr. Craft said is that there are four things that Lewis helps us to understand about the shape that the world is in and the prophecies that are out there. And the first one is that we are strangers and aliens in this world, and our true citizenship is in heaven. If you haven't read Hebrews 9 through 12 lately, I would commend that passage to you because that passage describes this concept about where our true country is so beautifully. And Lewis loved that concept of our true country, and he borrows it and uses it in the last battle in this just beautiful part where Jewel the unicorn comes in. All right, I'll stop on that, Um, because it's it's just so wonderful, but it is offered to each person divine grace, forgiveness, and salvation are continually being offered to each person. And you never know when that message is going to get through. And one of the most powerful illustrations that I think actually was Dr. McGrath is he showed a picture of C.S. Lewis in 1917 at Oxford University um, as a student getting ready to go off to officers training to get sent to the trenches in World War I. And Lewis is standing there looking young and handsome and dapper and intellectual and all those things. And this is the era when he was the world's great atheist. And what Dr. McGrath said is Lewis had no idea when that picture was taken what the call of God on his life would be. And he wouldn't even have believed that God existed to have a call on his life. But because people like J.R.R. Tolkien decided to take a risk and share the gospel with Lewis, look what resulted from that and the fruit that came from it. So we should never give up on anyone and we should be praying for people's conversion and we should be sharing our story and the story of the gospel. And then the last thing that Dr. Crave said is, what can we do? All of us want to do something. And he said, Sodom and Gomorrah almost made it. If God had found 10 righteous men, he would have spared two great cities. The most important thing we can do is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And they said, you can make a difference You can be the straw that broke the camel's back. And there is a deep truth right there. Imagine if every Christian really strove to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In the midst of a narcissistic culture, there is nothing that will draw people like a magnet other than that. So you're probably getting a sense that these were pretty amazing presentations. Um, Dr. Amy Orr Ewing was next. Amy Orr Ewing is another genius um, who took a first from Christchurch College, Oxford. Taking a first is like graduating summa cum laude. Um, she did graduate work. Um, she has done all kinds of amazing things like going to Afghanistan and Um, getting into a spiritual conversation with one of the leaders of the Taliban to the point that he actually asked her for a Bible. Uh, She's an amazing person. But she was talking about what we can learn from Lewis about dealing with the issue of suffering and our apologetics today. Because one of the objections you will hear from people is how can you look at the world How can you look just at last week with all these shootings? How can you imagine that there is a good God out there? You are out of your flippin' mind. And that is a real objection that we have to overcome. But the interesting thing that she was able to get across very powerfully is that the suffering of the world and of the individual creates an opportunity for ministry. And the reason for that is that if you have a naturalistic worldview, if you believe there is no God, if you believe that this is all just random and that you could have been a blade of grass or a cockroach, or as I used to say, Henry Fishburne, you could be any one of those things just by accident. It doesn't have anything to do with any design or purpose. If that's the way you believe, then suffering is just part and parcel of what happens. It doesn't mean anything. It's horrible, and you suffer, and you die, and it's all meaningless. But Christianity is the only thing that can explain how suffering can have meaning. It is the only worldview on offer where God suffers for his people. It is the only place where suffering is taken up out of this earth into the person of God himself, and that our understanding of suffering and good and evil, we wouldn't know what good and evil were if there were no standard. And that standard of good and evil can't come from a godless worldview. It can only come from a theistic worldview. So she said, we have a framework that can help make sense of suffering, not at all to minimize suffering, or to say that it doesn't matter, but to actually say how really terrible it is and to be able to listen and to listen with empathy to a culture that is so profoundly broken and hurting and alienated and alone. And she said this longing for justice that we see in our culture right now represents a huge gospel opportunity because justice is one of the things that is an attribute of God. God is the very definition of justice and trustworthiness, and his word is true, and the more that we can lean into that kind of framework, there's an opportunity to be able to speak the gospel into those situations. Um, Amy has written a number of books that I would come into. I'm going to you. I'm gonna try to remember to attach a book list um, when I send out the email. So the next talk was by Simon Harbin, who has Lewis's old job um, at Oxford. Um, Simon is a genius. He became a full professor at Oxford um, with Lewis's old job uh, at the age of 40, uh, which is not something that happens. Um, Simon, by training as a philologist, remember we talked about that a little while ago. Um, One of the interesting things about Simon is I think he is the only person in history who wrote a book on philology that got onto the top bestseller list. Um, It was on the bestseller list for weeks in England, and it was even picked by the Catholic Herald, which is a big newspaper in the UK, as their 2016 Book of the Year. So Simon, if you know anything about medieval literature, he is the world authority on Piers Plowman. Um, He is... uh, Well, he's the world authority on a lot of things, but he's a deeply Christian man, and he um, is in the midst of writing a book about Lewis right now, and so he was talking about what can we learn from the Narnia stories about telling a more beautiful story in a world that is starved for that. And so he titled his talk, Narnia, the Monsters and the Skeptics. And I want to just unpack that for a minute. Lewis and Tolkien, when they were on the faculty at Oxford, single-handedly decided that the syllabus of what people studied when they studied English literature needed to be changed. So they did some politicking, and they succeeded in managing to completely change what works of literature you studied if you were studying English literature. And they brought in, for the first time, to the mainstream, Beowulf, Paradise Lost, and some other works like that. And because Oxford was the greatest English-speaking university, that curriculum went all around the English-speaking world, even to the point that when I took English in high school, we were basically studying what Lewis and Tolkien said we should study. Tolkien, a lot of people don't know this, was the world expert on Beowulf. And he wrote this essay called... Uh, The Monsters and the Skeptics, about Beowulf, and what he wrote was about the whole idea of people trying to use different lenses to understand works. How many of you had everything you read in high school English interpreted through Freud? Yeah, there's still a lot of that out there. But what Tolkien was trying to say is that when you read a critic instead of reading the author, you kind of miss the point of the work. That what you should do is read what the author wrote and try to figure out what he meant rather than reading what a critic says the work means. And he wrote this brilliant essay, The Monsters and the Critics, and he uses this analogy that is just one of the greatest analogies ever. And he said, think of the critics as being like archaeologists that have gone out into uh, Cornwall in England and they find the remains of this tower. And so there are all of these blocks of stone and this big pile on the ground. And so they're picking up these stones and examining them and looking at how the mortar might have worked that held them together and talking about why they used this stone instead of that stone. And then they wrote all these essays about the stones. And Tolkien says, and they never thought about the fact that the whole reason that the tower had been built by the builder was that that was the only point in hundreds of miles where when you built a tower, you could see the ocean. And that the whole point of the tower was to see the ocean, and all the critics could do was look at the blocks. So Simon is talking about that is where we are with the culture, that we have these watchful dragons of the heart and mind that would keep us from understanding the truth that God has put all around us. And because we have so many watchful dragons and we've been maleducated, like malware on your computer that gets in and undoes everything and locks it up, we have been maleducated so that we have to be set free from that Um, because these watchful dragons will stop us from hearing the truth. And Simon said that the, I have to be careful about saying Simon said, uh, (laughs) these watchful dragons, the only way to get around them is through a beautiful story. Because if you've got a good hook, people will go right there with you. They will go right there with you. And we talked about Harry Potter as such a great example of this. If anybody had ever predicted that 13-year-olds would be in line at a bookstore to buy a 700-page book, people would have said they were crazy. But it shows you the power of a good story with a good hook. And Dr. Harbin said the Chronicles of Narnia are some of the best stories that are on offer. And he played with us a little bit with The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And all the people there were saying he needs to make an audiobook because listening to him read, you felt like you were just right there. But he talks about how Eustace, um, the character in that, who's this obnoxious boy, um, the one in the silver chair where it says Eustace Clarence Scrub um, was his name, and that he almost deserved it. Uh, he, was, he was just awful. So he is sinful, he's greedy. While they're on this trip on the ship, he sees this hoard of gold. He's like, oh, all this gold, I'll be rich, and then I can lord it over all of these other people that have been so mean to me. And he goes and he's like luxuriating in all this gold. And he wakes up and he thinks, oh, why does my arm hurt after I put that big gold bracelet on? And he realized he's been turned into a dragon because of his lust for this gold. And the story goes on and eventually he becomes really sad about being a dragon, and he realizes how all of the things that he thought about other people, that maybe he might have had some problems himself. And um, he begins to repent, and then Aslan comes to him and says um, that he can help him, but he has to undress first, that he has to get rid of the dragon skin. So the dragon skin peels, and he. Eustace pulls off one or two or three skins, and he thinks he's ready to jump into the cleansing pool, which has got a lot of baptism allusions. And Aslan's like, oh, no, 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 you still have more to go, and I'm going to have to help you to undress. And so Aslan the lion takes his claw and pierces through the dragon skin. And Eustace says it pierced him to his heart and that he had never felt such a pain But then as Aslan rips that loose, he feels free for the very first time. And he's able to go and bathe in that pool. But one of the things that's so beautiful in this story is it'd be very easy to say, and then they lived happily ever after. But Lewis is not that kind of storyteller. And what he said instead was this. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, He began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. And this is Lewis telling the truth. That's the way it works when we come to Christ. We don't instantly transform into being beautiful and holy. So the Narnia stories have so much for us. Um, Then Dr. Jerry Root. This was another just compelling beautiful presentation jerry root has written dozens and dozens of books on, on lewis and he talked about imagination as the organ of meaning and that each person has a story and that instead of looking at other people as inconveniences or data points we need to look at each person as somebody who is a story bearer and that as we begin to learn about their story and to truly care about their story we will then have the opportunity to speak into them. Um, Listening with empathy, when they give us permission to ask questions, to care deeply, to think about what makes this person tick. This person is in the image of God. How is that expressed in this person? And then that gives us the ability to then share our own story. And then lastly, we have the Reverend Dr. Michael Ward, um, who is probably the most important academic scholar on Lewis in the world right now, and he talked about how story can change our perspective, and he said, in a culture like ours, there's nothing that is more needed than something that can enable us to change our perspective, and he said, when that perspective changes, it can bring new light and new hope into a place that seemed dark, and hopeless, and full of despair and anxiety. And he said that as we share the story of Jesus, that we need to do it with reverence, and with beauty, and with joy. And then he read this um, compelling passage from The Horse and His Boy, that he says is such an exemplar of Lewis at his best doing all these things. And if you will indulge me, I'm going to read it to you so this is the horse and his boy there's a character called shasta who's had all these adventures and lots of things have gone wrong he's an orphan boy and he doesn't understand why all of these things that have happened to him so he's kind of at the end of his road and being very tired and having nothing inside him shasta felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheek what put a stop to all this was a sudden fright Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing. And the thing, or person, was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature, And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he'd heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he'd only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. Who are you? he said, barely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you... "'Are you a giant?' asked Shasta. "'You might call me a giant,' said the large voice, "'but I am not like the creatures you call giants.' "'I can't see you at all,' said Shasta, after staring very hard. "'Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, "'he said almost in a scream, "'You're not, not something dead, are you?' "'Oh, please, please do go away. "'What harm have I ever done you?' "'Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world.' Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fisherman, and then he told the story of his escape, and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives, and of all their dangers in Tashbon, and about his night among the tombs, and how the beast howled at him out of the desert, and he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey, and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded his friend Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was very bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two lions the first night. And there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know I was the lion? And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for, child, said the voice? I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so the earth shook and then again, myself loud and clear and gay, and the third time myself whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him yet he felt glad too. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he'd been talking to the thing, he'd not been noticing anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead he heard birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of his horse quite clearly now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw pacing beside him, taller than a horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it or else could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful." Well, there was a lot of that in the conference, a lot of wonder and beauty and joy. So it was great to be part of it all. Um, I just want to close by referencing I was glad again. um, I'm going to send you the link to this when I send the email. But it was a reminder when we were in this conference and in the worship services, surrounded by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that there was deep joy that was inexplicable in any earthly terms uh, because of that. The presence and the aroma of Christ that pervaded it all, um, all coming through the lens of people who love the stories of C.S. Lewis. So with that, let me say a prayer for us. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time tonight. We thank you for the gift of the conference this weekend. Lord, we pray that the seeds that were planted through that conference and through Lewis's works, would continue to bear great fruit, Lord, that the spell that we are under in our culture would be broken, that we would see beyond the clouds to see the blue sky and the sun and the love and wonder and awe and beauty of who you are and of who you have made your son Jesus to be for us, the Christ, the Lamb of God, who gave his life for the sins of the world. Lord, we thank you and praise you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.